technically diverse podcast featuring the Quadcast crew. So, welcome to episode number 14 of the Technically Diverse Podcast. We are located at the intersection of technology and cultural diversity. I am your host, Jordan. Joining me, as always, are the other members of the crew. My co-host, Ruby, a.k.a. Amsako, and our resident adrenaline junkie. Hey, everyone. Ruby here. Behind the scenes, working his magic as Uncle Mike. Remember, if it ain't Mike, it ain't right. Hey, how's it going? You know, every time you say that, I feel like we should be doing like a handshake or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. So today on Technically Diverse, we have Pav and Shay, who are both uh, middle school teachers in the Toronto School District. And not only that, they have a podcast that is a staff room podcast um which is very enlightening and kind of hearing the perspectives and talk points of teachers in our community and what's going on with our students so really appreciate you guys making the time to be with us today so, so let's much. let's get right into it and if Pav and Shay can just kind of tell us a little bit about yourselves and about your podcast as well Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ruby and Jordan and Mike for having us on Technically Diverse this morning. Um, we're really excited to talk with you guys. Um, myself, my name is Pav Wander and I am a middle school teacher, as you mentioned, in the Rexdale area of Toronto. So that's the northwest part of uh, Toronto. And uh, I was born and raised in the community, grew up here, and so also very blessed and privileged to be teaching in the same community where, where I grew up. Um, lots of uh, challenges that uh, that we face every day in this community, but um, it's it's really where we want to be and serving our students on a daily basis. Um, and many of the things that we've encountered in our teaching uh, over the past, I've been a teacher for 15 years, mostly middle school, grade six, seven, and eight, uh, my entire career. Um, we've decided that there's some things that that we love to really be able to reflect upon in our day-to-day -day teaching. So uh, about a year and a half ago, we started a podcast called The Staff Room, and uh, and it served that purpose entirely. It's uh, finish a week of teaching, and then on Friday evening, just record our reflections on anything that stood out that week or anything interesting that's uh, that's that we feel like we need to reflect on to address a little bit further. And so uh, that's that's been the basis of the Staff Room podcast. Um, and that also spawned uh, another creation, uh, which involves music, uh, which is The Drive, which is a live music radio show that airs on Voice Ed Radio on Sunday evenings from 8.30 to 10 p.m. So um, it's just become a really great community piece and we get a lot of uh, interaction on that and uh, and really, yeah, really be able to talk teaching in a more casual format with the uh, inclusion of some great music along the way. So the, I just got a question there before Shay goes. That is another show that you do on Sundays? Yes, right? yes. So we record uh, the Staff Room podcast weekly on Friday evenings. And then on Sunday evenings, we do The Drive, which is a live show. Oh, you guys are busy. Like, when are you finding time to mark uh, assignments? We don't. Uh, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I'll mark I, go ahead, Jordan. Uh, I was gonna say I, I for one am really happy uh, to have you here today because um I, I, I want to dispel some myths around education and mm -hmm. uh, I have some mixed feelings from my um, upbringing and my experiences in school. So I'm happy that I can you know we can have some subject matter experts here to to kind of take us through it. Um, one of the things that I wanted to, to jump in and talk about was just uh, again our interesting experiences. Uh, we talked before the show and we were, we were just kind of talking about school and the big kind of game changer. And um... sorry, Jordan, I want I want to know about Che. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Jordan, you don't need to say sorry at all. As long as we've been doing this podcast, no one ever wants to know about me. And and, and when people ask what's the, what's the the main ingredient to your your staff room podcast, it's Pav. <laughs> and then people, people go, no, tell me more, tell me more. I said, no, I told you the whole thing. That That's it. It's bad. Um, I'll jump in quickly. I've been teaching for 21 years in the Rexdale community, same school, grade eight, the entire, almost the entire time, but uh, the okay. first few years in grade six. Um, unlike Pav, my journey there has been different. I'm not from Toronto. I'm from Ottawa. So I didn't have rich oh. cultural experiences. So I came here and as a young man in Toronto, I only ever been here to play sports. I had no idea, even though Ottawa is only a few hours away, just yeah. how vastly, uh, rich and diverse and, and powerful a place like Toronto was. And so took my first job and uh, took my first interview very naively. And um, I've made some mistakes along the way. I wasn't culturally aware. I had very simplistic, naive ideas of what the world was like. Uh, and 20 years in, there's still room for my for my growth. But when I think about Pav says this is her community born and raised, I've come to ascend that this is my community as well. I'm here to mutually learn. I'm here to be an advocate. I'm here to be an ally. I'm here to disrupt. Uh, and I'm here to continue to learn and grow. And so when I think of my educational journey, I'm really happy where I'm at. And the Staff Room podcast is a sort of a segue is um, how do Pav and I continue to build our capacities? What's our commitment to our continual growth? Teaching can be stagnant and stoic. You can find a rhythm and just go with the rhythm. But is the rhythm really serving everyone around you? And are you going to find ways um, the, the, the system will give you ways to better your skills, but are you going to take ownership over that? And so when you joke about how busy we are, we are really busy, but Pav and I always say we get exhausted, we get tired, we wonder if we should be keeping this pace, but then we say, you know what, we come back to our classroom Monday and we have three new ideas and we've done some self-reflection we realize this wasn't working. And so ultimately the, the, the balance of it is that the work that we're putting in and that self-reflection and talking to other educators and reading other books and going to, to book studies makes us better in the classroom, better in our communities so we're going to keep going and so that's you know my brief intro wow that was <laughs> wow <laughs> i'm here writing down a whole bunch of things thinking, yeah. oh, man i got some questions for you guys <laughs> wow no and, it, and i think that's so cool to get your perspective as well shake because like when uh we were talking like jordan mike um just and what jordan's alluding to are all our experiences um because we've been on that side of like having that cultural experience and bringing it to to this like our school system being in those grades and not being able to uh embrace our own cultural differences and kind of having to uh conform to the way it was supposed to be like saying my name or even taking my lunch to school and being like you know ashamed of like the 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 roti and the sabji my mom gave me and be like okay i wish i had a sandwich like things like that and and it's so cool to kind of hear that perspective of like teachers coming into communities uh, that are like the GTA 
uh, that are, you know, a mix of so many cultures and so diverse, but it's taken so many years to recognize that. Um, but, um, but I, I, Jordan, I didn't want to stop your flow. Like I would love to uh, kind of go back to your train of thought. Oh, oh, it's okay. We're going to use the, pat the magic of editing to, to fix that. So <laughs> that's okay. Um, but no, Ruby, just playing off what you said on our experiences, um, just because I, I know, Mike, you mentioned that, you know, for school, for you, a lot of it was typing and they were teaching typing and getting we that were going. Teaching when I was, when I was in school. Yeah. And, and then I was talking about how computers became a big thing. Cause like, you know, the, the Durham district school board set up computer lab, right. And taking a field trip to go to the computer lab and the introduction of computers was like super huge to education. And like, now it's like way beyond that with like smart boards being in the classroom. A couple of years ago, I, I volunteered to, to go to a school and teach uh, youth about business. And um, the technology that I saw in the room was crazy. Like when I saw the smart board, I was like, oh man, and the teacher's like, yeah, I can just like mm -hmm. write on it and it can go right digital on like, that's crazy. So, um, so yeah, uh, I just wanted to talk about the evolution of education and you know what 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 were your experiences like when you were going to school? Anyone? So, yeah. Yeah, I know that I can I can relate a lot to Ruby's experiences. Um, it's it's a lot it's a lot like that, and and it's like that in many different areas of the GTA. Um, and so just just to touch a little bit on that that sort of Eurocentric uh, way that curriculum that we have the the schools and the way that they exist right now, or or they have been. I think that we are now becoming a little bit more aware of these situations more so in the GTA. And I have to say that Che and I are definitely uh, a little bit more privileged in that sense. Oh my gosh, sorry. I don't know if you heard my phone. I am on do no, not disturb, not but okay. I didn't hear it at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah, so on. we were able to sort of, we're, we're able to really embrace ourselves and move into that that environment a little bit more in in the community that we are in and i know that we are privileged in that sense because um when we go just 15 minutes outside of the gta we find that i think that teachers are a little bit more sheltered with their experiences of this cultural diversity and um, really being able to serve the students that they have so i know that i wanted to touch on that just a little bit that although um it still exists um and especially just outside of the gta i think that teachers are becoming a little bit more aware of that that cultural responsiveness that uh, crp culturally relevant and responsive pedagogy and making sure that we are best serving our students where we are so you know starting with the 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 simple things like being aware of um of holidays and being aware of culturally significant things like um dress or food or pronunciation of names and acknowledging those things but now also going beyond that and knowing what um family systems are like or you know ramadan is coming up next week and so how are we accommodating for the students in our spaces rather than saying well you know you still got to participate in gym because i got to mark you for gym um or you know making sure that our students are doing everything but meanwhile ignoring the fact that our students are going to be fasting during this entire period oh, yeah. so it's uh it's just the awareness of it and then also the accommodations we've done a lot to accommodate for our students academically but we've not done a lot of cultural accommodation um a diversity accommodation and so this is something that i think that is 
that is happening more so in our school systems now. And it's, it's definitely um, been a really good thing. Um, the technology piece, and I know that Che it speaks much better about this than, than I am. Um, but he, but the tech is, is it's a tool. It's a tool. It, it's not really the delivery. It's not the content. Right. So um, we do our best. This year has been very fortunate in terms of tech because there has been this push to um, equitably be able to serve all of our students and make sure that we are getting tech to everybody in the in the class so that we don't have those inequities when when our students go home. So it's providing Chromebooks for each student to make sure that they are able to learn from home. Right now we are in a learning at home scenario. Yeah. And yeah. so we, we need to be able to make sure that our students are able to get online without having to worry about, well, I don't have internet or um, I don't have a device at home or I do have a device, but I have to share it with my four other siblings. So how are we all going to be in school at the same time? So right. um, there's there's a lot of that that is sort of stemming. And I know that Che will fill in a lot of the gaps that I have here, but um, but we're, we're it's evolving. And, and is it? I'm not sure if the teaching is evolving first or some of these tools that we have around us are evolving first and we're sort of kind of playing catch up the entire time. Um, but in essence, it's it's all in order to best serve our students. And so I think that that's the biggest challenge that we have as teachers today. Wow. The question, question around the, you know, utilizing those as tools, but you know, the way of learning and comparing it to how I got exposed to technology or the lack of technology. And, you know, I remember having classes like uh, Woodshop or uh, like there was class, and this is grade seven, grade eight, uh, when I went to school at Darcel. Um, and then class, classes like auto and learning how to like change a tire. Um, but then also, you know, there were classes to like learn how to type. So. The, the change in what you're able to have in your curriculum um, and from the skill set building perspective. And, and I know you guys talked about in one of your podcasts about, you know, receiving an A and the way uh, a student learns. Like, are you saying that the student that got a D, maybe, you know, that student isn't equipped to learn in that way. And maybe that isn't the, the path that they, they want to take. So from so two points, like from a technology perspective, having those tools, but then also eliminating a lot of the hands-on um, skills building uh, classes that were available before, no longer there. And now uh, how do students and how teaching them, like how do you take them to be able to recognize what they might be interested in and, and con conforming to the whole, you get a satisfactory or an excellent or needs improvement or like the standard ABC, kind of grading system. Hmm. Okay, there's a ton there to 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 no, go. Lots at. Mm. <laughs> you know what I would we always talk about as educators we want to disrupt or we want to challenge or we want to see and part of the, you know, covid obviously comes with lots of negatives, but one of the positives is that it has a manifested a disruption of education where people and systems couldn't do it or wouldn't do it or weren't able to do it. The the covid situation has absolutely disrupted education on terms of anti-racism in terms of technology it's forced you to address issues i think pav talked about access to tech but access to tech is one component of sort of equality with technology but when we think of our experiences 
teaching in Rexdale, we didn't have access to a lot of tech beforehand. And so, yeah, we've rolled out the tech, but you know what we've lacked is the infrastructure behind it. Do our, are our kids really comfortable joining a Chromebook? Because if you read the data, just having a Chromebook, different people use it differently. And if your school hasn't immersed in that tech culture where kids know how to jump on their Chromebook and use it efficiently, know how to use apps, know how to use software, know how to use Flipgrid, then they're just going on and having a Chromebook and still not being very productive or very engaged. And then conversely, do teachers have the pedagogy and the professional development behind it to know how to use tech effectively? I think Pav and I, like when I was thinking of my schools in previous years, we would have the Chromebooks for two periods a week. Well, I'm not building my program and cementing it on Chromebooks two periods a week. Because if you lose it, then those kids don't have access to Chromebooks for two weeks. So I'm going to teach with a variety of different tools. So when we pivoted, oh, sorry, I take that out. I don't use the word pivot. When we twirled to remote learning, <laughs> when, we, when we twirled to remote learning, it, one thing it was great to get everyone a device, but teachers didn't have the capacities to know how to use it effectively. Students didn't have the experiences to know how to use it. So, you know, very simplistically, you would say, oh, we're all equal now. Well, no, we're not, because there's certain schools and certain communities that had Chromebooks and high-end tech and had PD coming in and teachers knew how to use it and students knew how to use it and they jumped right in and then they just went, I won't say smoothly, but far different than say the students of Rexdale were able to fly into that, that space. Um, so uh, that tech growth is really important and it's continued growth for us. Now, is tech the, the high-end teaching? Pat talked about it's not. Great pedagogies uh, is high in teaching. You know what a powerful reading experience is? A powerful learning is reading a book out loud to your students and engaging in the content and questioning the content and finding identity and seeing stories. And then maybe I can use my tech to write a blog or do a flip grid or, or make a video or take a photo. But I think part of the, the pendulum swing of technology is that technology becomes the new sexy. And now we think we're teaching really great because we're doing a flip grid, because we're taking a photo, because we're making a videography, because you're doing a YouTube channel. But what have you learned? Like, I understand these places have value, but are we still doing rich learning? Do our kids still feel heard? Do our kids still feel honored? Or are we masking this with fun little technology things that don't necessarily create a, a love of learning or create a space of mutual learning with me and the students? So I, I often think of me and tech as like only Nixon could go to China. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm fine challenging tech because I'm very good with tech. And um and so uh, there were many different questions, many different talking points. Some I got to, some I didn't. But the theme is, is that COVID is a real disruption. It's really opened our eyes to things. And sometimes people will say, well, now I, I put it into a sports analogy, although I always tell Pav, I won't explain things through sports analogy. Education isn't that simple. But as educators, we've been thrown a batting practice fastball down the middle to correct things. It's right there for us. We can see it now. When the game is on, when we're in our classroom, it's not, it's not a batting practice fastball down the middle of the plate. It's a hard slider that's cutting out. You miss it. You don't see it. You're not ready for it. We've been gifted a chance to really make a difference and make a change because it's so obvious. And will we continue to do it? Will we continue to push forward? Will we get complacent that we've done enough? I would argue we haven't done enough. And I would flip back to the reason we podcast and do the drive is because we know there's still room to continue to grow because we have an opportunity to build our personal capacity that makes us better uh, in that space. Wow. Um, I have a question or kind of a statement. Maybe you can expand upon it. So in, in my working life, I, I'm, I'm a computer engineer. I, I basically go place to place and I talk to a lot of the boards across the country I've done over time. One of the things I did, and this is talking in Eastern Canada, 
they were taught telling me about how kids learn. And they said that, you know, if it's in elementary school, it weren't learned one way, you know, middle school, it's another way. And then in um, uh, high school, it's, it's, it's another way. But they said that over time with the advent of the internet, they don't teach the kids the same way. So the curriculum is kind of changed, I believe. And now they're not teaching kids to learn. They're, learn, they're teaching kids to find the information. Is that part of the twirl um, that you guys have to do now? So that, that's always a little bit of a challenging one because um, you know, it is it is something that I think as myself, I can speak for myself as a teacher, I'm often encouraging my students to um, seek information, but the learning is is not just seeking information and finding information it's then taking that information and applying it to mm -hmm. to whatever it is that you are doing so in that regard i don't think that that has changed much because if you were seeking information before um you know you might find that you might seek that information through the books that you have access to in the library now our breadth of information that is available to us has really exponentially increased and so uh, yes, absolutely. We are teaching, we are still teaching different ways to find that information, different avenues. And I think that now that we have the internet, we have to do that in a more critical way. So there's definitely uh, the whole idea of digital citizenship, you know, being mm -hmm. aware of uh, what's out there and how to use it, how to differentiate between, um, you know, how to fact check and how to differentiate between something that is going to give you good information versus something that is completely based on uh, opinion or bias or, or whatnot. Right. So we're definitely teaching in a different way. So the access to information has changed, mm -hmm. um, but the learning still happens with the reflection that comes with the, uh, the engagement that happens with that information that has been acquired. So um, yes, absolutely. There are some changes now in regards to the way that we help our students access the information and then critically analyze the information to make sure that it's valid and valuable. And that is going to be different from those different areas within education. So you have your K to five, your middle school years, and then you have you know your high school years and then beyond. Um, I think that that looks different. And I think that there still is a discrepancy between those those flips. So I think that when we are working with K to three students, I suppose um, it's it's more about play based learning. It's more about exploration. It's more about trying to seek out the information from different places and in different ways. And then as we get into into high school, um, that it's almost as if well you should know how to access that information yeah. at this point so we're going to skip right over that piece and go right into how are we engaging with that content applying it where it's needed and then pulling that information in to use it um i can't speak for a high school teaching and and sort of i know that high school teachers are working really hard to sort of um, change that or to work towards that type of learning as well. Um, we see a lot of it on social media and so we're, we're always interested to learn. Um, but as middle school teachers, we, we really like to take that exploration piece and now accessing the information, but then reining it in to figure out how to use it to best enhance our learning experience in the classroom. So I think that that is a piece that is constantly evolving, especially now with 
access to all kinds of information right now. Mm -hmm. One thing that I'm taking away um, that I find really interesting is that your education specialists, because I'm, I'm hearing that there's different like methodologies for elementary school students and kindergarten students and high school students. And I just thought all teachers were the same, but it's interesting to hear that there's different ways to kind of go about it. Um, and yeah, that's yeah, kind of, it's kind of sobering. <laughs> I think I think one of the bigger and another way of looking at another shift is sort of the pillars of where education is. And is it system centered? Is it teacher centered or is it student centered? And I think we all talk about wanting to be student centered, but inherently we're almost always ingrained in system centered. Uh, but that I think that's part of that shift in teaching pedagogies is the more we be we fixate on student-centered, we 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 come back to we want questioning and we want inquiry. And I know Pab used the word play, but it was funny when Pab was talking about middle school teachers, that's probably the, the, the most used vernacular I use when talking about math. We're going to play with the numbers today. We're going to play with the math today. Mm. And so um, even though play looks differently from um, kindergarten to a junior kid to a middle school kids, I, I actually think as Pat was talking, I was saying, actually, I, I use the word play and exploration a lot. And so I think those pedagogies, I think those are rooted in the idea of student centered. So we want student voice, we want um, problem based learning, we want connection to community. And these come when we decenter the system. I think what tends to happen is there's a lot of performative talk about we want student voice and we want teacher voice and we want uh, student centered. But when it comes to a push or it comes to a shove or it comes to uh, policy or curriculum, we defer back to the system. It becomes the natural default. And sometimes that performative uh, noise gets in your, bothers you because you know we always talk uh, student-centered, but when it comes down to it, we often, we only want student-centered as long as it protects and validates the system as system-centered. And so and when you were talking, Pap, and with that question, Drew, I was thinking those three pillars, system-centered, teacher-centered, student-centered, and we want to be student-centered, and our pedagogies uh, change and alter around the idea of student-centered, and I think they, they contrast each other when we shift to uh, teacher-centered, what might be more compliance-oriented, whether it's explicit or implicit, or back to system-centered, where we're just completely compliant to the system, say, EQAO scores, and making sure our school grade six math reading score, math problem-solving scores look like this. So that would be my sort of add-on to that really great question and rich conversation. I have one more add on to this because you were just talking about student center, student centered and system centered um, and teacher centered. Um, this is more goes on the, you know, the culture of the of the students, because you're going to have multiple different cultures and especially in your area. How do teachers learn about other cultures? So even saying the type of discipline a, a kid would get at home compared to this another another culture. How do you deal with that? How do you learn about that? Both of you said that you had a big diverse culture coming in working in, in Toronto. Shay, you said that you experienced the whole thing coming like you know coming from, from Ottawa. It was completely different or like to know how that is uh handled or or learned or is it I guess it would be per teacher, but I don't think there's anything in the system for that. No, there, there isn't. You're right about that. There isn't anything necessarily in the system uh, for that. And this is part of, I think, the, the evolution of teacher learning and that, that culturally relevant pedagogy is, is always seeking to best serve 
our students in, in any possible way that we can. And so what you're talking about in regards to that discipline and, you know, how are, how are students, um, things like hospitality even at home, these things are different from culture to culture. And so when we talk about, uh, you may have, might have heard of the term like, you know, we're, we're going past heroes and holidays in our classroom. So we're not just talking about the surface level of, of culture. Um, we invite students to really embrace that deep culture and talk more about that in the in the classroom spaces and that doesn't just happen naturally that doesn't just happen all right everybody we're going to talk about deep culture in the class today that's not um that's not something that our students are used to that's not something that our our curriculum and our system is used to so i think it really starts with honoring identity in our in our spaces and something that che and i have both done in the in the past couple of years is really start the school year focusing in and narrowing in on our students identity and having them share their stories their personal stories as best as they can through through many aspects of the curriculum so they're showing sharing stories about their their um immigration to canada their family's immigration to canada whether it's through their own experience or their family's experience and talking about and relating a lot back to what's happening there so um you know, last I'm thinking back to last school year with the uh, the murder of George Floyd and all the protests that were happening around that time. It was a really great opportunity for us to talk about what is your experience with protest in your home country. You know, what does protest look like in other places around the world? And Ruby, I know that you've done lots of talking about the farmers' protest and in, in India, and so we've been able to bring um, this idea of protest and what it looks like in different cultures into our classroom spaces and really discuss it. So we are discussing um, all of the, the different aspects of why we protest and what is the importance of protest and what are the different forms of protest on a, on a multi um, or a diverse cultural sort of perspective. And so um, I think that it's really important to bring identity into the classroom because you are able to really tap into the stories of our students in a much deeper way when we when we do that. So we we honor each and every student through their own sharing and that requires a lot of relationship building that requires a lot of trust that requires openness and honesty and vulnerability and authenticity on the teacher's perspective you know for myself i can speak to my students as a person of color as a woman um, we've discussed things like intersectionality with my grade six class and they get it right they get these things because we we invite those conversations in in a very safe way in our classroom and so i think that being able to allow these types of conversations to happen these authentic conversations to happen in our classroom we're really able to go a little bit deeper than well this is the food that we eat in my culture this is the uh, these are the clothes that we wear and these are the holidays that we celebrate it's it's moving beyond that and really enriching our learning experience and saying we all know that we're different we all know that we come from different places around the world but does that really make us different do we share things in common you know when when people come over to eat do you eat first or do you serve the people that come to your home to to eat first and and you know people from different cultures put up their hand and say oh yeah you're right we do that too 
We always serve yeah. other people first. So we bring those commonalities into the conversation and that allows us to safely be able to talk about our differences. And so I think that that is something that has really helped um, in our classroom spaces for myself, especially I can speak to that the more that I've really introduced that aspect that element of identity in my classroom, the more we've been able to engage in these types of rich discussions that really highlight the differences of our students and, and for them to openly and honestly be able to discuss them. I'm, I'm so happy to, to hear that you, you say that because um, I think that we focus on differences more than we focus on things that we have in common. Like, I think that's just like a human nature thing. And even growing up at school, like I grew up in a situation that wasn't common to like the students around me. Like I, my parents were divorced. I was one of the only, well, I was one of the few black kids at the entire school. Um, and I didn't feel that trust and that, you know, that understanding from the, the teachers that I had at the time. So it led to periods of me feeling kind of disengaged at school. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very happy to hear that you've been able to implement um, some of those changes. And, um, you know, Ruby, I know you want to jump in here. Yeah, like I wanted to kind of maybe even get Shay's perspective um, in the sense that, so I'll give you an example. So in our, in our workspaces, you know, we really started talking about diversity and inclusion and being managers, not everybody feels comfortable having those conversations with their team. So in, in essence, some individuals feel comfortable in creating that space to have that diversity inclusion. And Shay, and the reason I'm asking you is, you know, coming from Ottawa, coming into a community where it is diverse, um, is it across the board where teachers, A, are they uh, given kind of a, a, a training or are they given uh, guidelines on how to foster and begin that conversation? Or is it still, you know, kind of done from the perspective of those diverse individuals, diverse teachers who feel comfortable in kind of embracing that. And what, what do teachers do when it is uncomfortable to kind of incorporate that in their classrooms? Um, lots of things to reflect on there. Um, I think the system is trying to catch up. And if I think of my own growth, I would probably say it's been self-directed. Um, uh, and also, I think as Pap talked about this earlier, one, I consider now a complete blessing to teach in Rexdale because I've grown as a teacher, but importantly, I've grown as a human being. And then sometimes I just project on people to assume that they have the same experiences. I, I actually forget that there's many teachers that sit and just teach in, in, in an all white space. And I actually, despite being a white male, I, I don't have a lot of experience in uh, a staff that's um, just, well, I guess in, in our schools, it's still disproportionately white, but it's not, it's still a very rich and diverse staff. It's disproportionate in regards to student population, but I haven't had a lot of those, the sort of the typical experiences, which I think has been really good for myself. But I think as Pav and I have discussed, sometimes we think that everyone has had these experiences. And then we talk about, you know, like, how do you teach anti-racism? How are you culturally responsive if you're a white teacher with an all right, white white class. I, I actually don't know. Um, this is why I always feel so blessed to be in this space for the two types of learning as a teacher and as a human being. Um, you do have to take some ownership of it. It doesn't have to be something that's important. And I think this is why I use the, the term mutual learner. Uh, your teacher, you're a mutual learner in that space. Yes, you have a moral obligation to run the room and, and keep it safe and address when it's not safe and keep it brave. Um, but ultimately, you as Padgies, you want to use that word authentic. You also want to be a mutual learner in that space. When we talk about play and exploration and sharing identity, 
well, students aren't really going to be open to sharing identity if you're running everything through compliance and through hierarchy. It does take a lot of work. Uh, Pav talked about um, relationship building, and I think this is something that's performatively trivialized all the time. Oh, we'll just relationships first. I'm like, well, how do you think you build a relationship? I, I can't do get to know you activities for three months and then think we've built some sort of trusting relationship that somehow now you'll want, you'll feel safe to, to, to share your realities and your experiences and feel that they'll be honored in the space. It comes back to curriculum and it comes back to Pav talking about uh, surface level culture or deep culture. I, I immerse myself in understanding deep culture when I understand my math has to be culturally aware. My science class has to be culturally aware. It's not just a talking point before English class or before a novel to, to, to try to immerse in culture. And when you as a teacher demonstrate, especially now, again, as a white male in a class that's completely racialized, What's my role? Like I, despite my best efforts, my voice is the most booming voice in that space. Even if I'm not talking, even if I'm not standing at the front of the room, I had to learn that. And so I need to know my students are, I feel it's my moral obligation to make sure my students know that I'm an advocate for them, that I'll be an ally for them, that I'll be an accomplice for them, uh, that I will disrupt on their behalf. And so I'm very open about my privilege with them and, and let them know that with this privilege, I will use it to our collective benefit. So we talk about these things openly, or at least I talk about them openly, and then understand that I need to create really rich, valuable learning opportunities that will allow them to feel safe and brave to explore. So uh, a few of our students in my room and in our school recently have been very, very strong advocates for LGBTQ issues. And I would love to say, oh, one day I just said, let's talk about this and the students dove in, but they didn't. They were curated out of LA activities when we were talking about biography and we were talking about song and we were talking about pick your favorite lyric and we were honoring those stories. And then we were talking about science and I was like, we we're talking about cell researchers, but I don't want you to tell me about some white male that made some great insights on cell research. Let's dive a little deeper. And these open up conversations. So when you talk about relationships, you build relationships as a teacher by showing how seriously you take your craft. How much do you want to dissect the curriculum? How far are you willing to go beyond the surface level teachings of let's do a math example and Pav I'm going to steal one of your best examples out of the textbook oh the kids are going on a yacht trip well guess what our kids haven't been on a yacht trip so let's make this let's show to our students that we're willing to just tear this question apart and find something that is community-based find an example that is a real world connection that they can relate to and what does that demonstrate to our students that my students see that my teacher sees something more in us they aren't going to trivialize a math question by keeping it about a yacht trip let's make it personal and then you demonstrate to your students that I'm willing to question resources. I'm willing to question uh, the curriculum. And big and foremost is always demonstrate to your students you're willing to question yourself. We think about disruption and anti-racism. And one of the best learning I've had is I got to disrupt myself first. I got to be an anti-racist to myself first before I start telling and poking yeah. at other people to say, do that. You, you, you come at yourself and you be willing to disrupt yourself. And so when you model that and you share that and you build this over time, then ideally you create a space where, where you think, you want to hope that you have honored your students enough that they're willing to engage in these conversations. I'll end with one little example that uh, someone we talked with, Beth Lyon, shared with us. When we think about sort of uh, identity, mirror, look at yourself in the mirror, look through the window, and then go through the sliding door to immerse yourself with everyone. It's sort of been a, a sort of three pillars of how I've tried to run the classroom. Check yourself, look, view, observe, learn, study, and then open that sliding door and, and let's immerse together. That's great. That, that's good.
you mentioned um, some touchy issues here, like um, LGBTQ issues. Um, you've touched on racism. How do you get around the landmine of teaching about these things when you could get pushback from parents? Because I've seen, you know, board meetings and community consultations where parents are pushing back against these things about teachers delivering the content they want to deliver at home. But, you know, at times the, the views that are coming from at home could be biased um, and don't take into account everything. So how do you navigate teaching around that? And do you honestly believe that you know, not teaching it at school will be effective seeing as children have access to the internet and can easily look up some of these things? Like, do, do you think some parents even taking a hardline stance of, you know, don't teach us at school, is, is that actually viable? So uh, I know that Che and I have had this discussion in the past and it's come up uh, many times in our community as well, this notion of pushback when we're discussing these quote unquote set, uh, sensitive uh, topics in our classroom spaces. And uh, we can we can attest to say that we we welcome them. Um, I think that's something that we as teachers know we need to have is support from our administration, support from our superintendent, support from our fellow staff members. And if we're all on the same page in saying that these are important conversations that we need to have, then we welcome parents to come in and be a part of the discussion. And let's sit together and let's let's talk about why these issues need to be brought into the school community and why, you know, we, we have students who are actively asking us these questions because they need clarity on these topics. And if if it if it does fall on our moral and ethical responsibility to help our students navigate these these things that could be personally affecting them. And so, um, you know, we had this issue come up at our school where somebody had brought up the fact, well, we can't talk about uh, anti-racism because what about this community or what about that community or what about these parents that are going to come in and say that we don't want this in the school? Well, welcome them, bring them into the school when we have our parent teacher and, uh, you know, like our our school council meetings and uh, and let's let's talk about it. Let's 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 disrupt it. Let's figure out where these uh, hesitancies are coming from, and let's and, and if it's a cultural thing, it's a religious thing. Let's let's discuss how to accommodate those needs. Let's figure out how we can help our students um, through the supports that we offer through the school or through the the community system in being able to address these because we have we have resources. We are able to tap into community resources. We have community community liaison people that work with the community. You know, they are not teachers in the school, but they directly work within the community to help families um, and get the resources that they need to be able to uh, address topics. So those resources are there. And I think this notion of, um, well, what about the pushback? I think that we have to welcome that pushback. Yeah. Um, and so as, as Che was talking about and going back a little bit to Ruby's question just prior, you know, how, how do we teach teachers how to do this? In, in our case, myself and Che, this has been a lot of self-directed learning. It has been essentially all self-directed. There's no, there, although there is PD to talk about things like Courageous Conversations, which is a book that we read years ago by Glenn Singleton. And, and it talks about, you know, there's, there's four agreements to being able to have these difficult conversations in our classes and you know there's there's those four agreements are to stay engaged to um we have to be 
uh, you know, aware of the notion that we are going to be experiencing discomfort in these conversations. Uh, we have to be able to speak our truths and we have to accept and expect non-disclosure in, in the issues that we talk about. And so that extends not just to the staff community, but also to the parent community that's around us. We can't have these conversations without a little bit of courage and a little bit of discomfort and a little bit of, um, well, we have to understand what our students need. This is what our children need. And so how are we going to give them what they need? We want to be able to accommodate to everyone's needs. And so let's figure out how to do that. So um, I've, I've, I've always been kind of, um, you know, I would I I always reject the notion that you can help children to like the basics, like learn how to do math and learn how to read, but you can't teach about sexual issues like that seems very weird to me like your educators like this is what you do so. Um, yeah, I just want you to know that that's really, really weird to me. Yeah, and yeah. It has been. and Che and I have never really shied away from those things as educators, so I think that we it's have. We have talked again, because now I'll reference my privilege as a teacher of 20 years in this community. I, I feel safe that I can I can make these pushes like I don't fear the administrative as much, even if they're supporting. I don't fear. And I reference that because not every teacher has 20 years experience in a community. Like when I teach a class, there's almost no chance there's a student in my room that I haven't taught the cousin the sibling, uh, a family member. So I, I am in a position where I really can. So I take that seriously to know I've been gifted a real chance to push because I've, I, I don't gifted might be the wrong word. I have a, I've been privileged and I have some privilege. So I use it. And Pav and I have talked about if you're a second year teacher in a brand new school and you don't know your administrator and you don't know your superintendent, this is why it is really important to one, have that, um, you know, system center. You, you have to make sure you have that system there to protect you. I and, and Pav in the same deal. We've taught long enough and been in this community long enough where we have a little bit of, I guess, we've decided we can take these chances, but we wouldn't also be sort of um, gatekeepers or on the ascend to the mountaintop to tell every teacher that you can do this because and blindly assume that you can get away with it. I, I don't even know if that's the right expression the way we can. You you as a teacher, you have to know your space and you have to know who's around you and you have to know who's, who's going to support you because there is a lot of performative talk of, oh, it's performative about anti-racism. Like, uh, as an idea of the system centered it, as long as it doesn't challenge the system but as soon as the system's challenged then people drop that vernacular pretty fast and so uh, especially for newer teachers in newer buildings with newer administrators and newer superintendents you do have to find out the the framework and yes you want to be a disruptor but I from my from my place don't want to put pressure on you to be a disruptor when I don't know if you have the same conditions around you that will allow you to be that so I do like to talk on that point so um, question I had around that is, you know, becoming disruptors and also balancing what the administration wants. And Pav, you touched on this earlier about the Eurocentric uh, curriculum. You know, when we look at what our kids are learning today, it is predominantly Euro Eurocentric. How do, you, how do you kind of impact the change in the curric curriculum? Because a lot of conversations we've also had about was, you know, Black History Month. Why is it just one month out of the whole year and it's just that one month. Is there, why can't it be just integrated throughout throughout the year? Or even like now it's April is Sikh Heritage Month. So how do we go about even addressing and looking at like diversity and different cultures as well as learning about that? But is there a shift? Do you see a shift, a, a significant shift away from the Eurocentric curriculum? Um, or is there a lot of work to still be done? And 
And I guess the other thing is, is are people looking for that shift? Are parents recognizing that? So um, I think, yes, that shift is starting to happen. Um, I think that for myself and Che, it's more apparent because we we are so, I mean, I mean, and this is where like our podcast has been our biggest form of professional development um, in our entire careers, because we've been able to explore um, what this looks like in different parts of the world. And, you know, we get, uh, you know, the, we've developed sort of this professional learning network and community um, all over the US, um, all over Canada and other parts of the world where we can actually see this happening in other places. And what we've seen from our um, sort of engagement in, in the, di the dialogue is that this is definitely a shift that people want. Um, we do need to see it reflected more in different curriculums. Um, and, and it is starting to happen. I think it's starting from the inside out. It's starting with the teachers that individually go out and, and seek to make those changes and then advocate for uh, those changes to be written into the curriculum. And it's, it is starting to happen. Um, I think that the curriculum is starting to, the wording of the curriculum is starting to be more and more vague. Uh, and we've seen this um, more so uh, more recently in the math curriculum. The math curriculum has gone from something that's very specific expectations to much broader expectations because that allows for um, the integration of of different types of different types of learning. So we're able to now um, encourage you know, uh, different forms of math to be incorporated, not just not just, you know, we're, we're not compartmentalizing different topics within math, but we're integrating it throughout the entire year. And I think that that is something that we want to be doing more so in other parts of the curriculum as well. If I can think back to our social studies curriculum. It does actually highlight in in the curriculum that we are looking at the different communities that exist in Canada and seeking to explore those communities a little bit more. Um, what we have to move away from is using those textbooks that were written 20 years ago alongside right. that curriculum, <laughs> right? So when, when that curriculum was written, yes, there were textbooks that came out at the same time, and those textbooks just don't cover things that are relevant to us today. So we need to do our work in finding the, the relevant resources to bring into that conversation. And yes, we have that discussion. There's, there's a heritage month for every month of the year, but should we only be teaching that heritage month during that month? We should be incorporating that, 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 that learning throughout. And so I think that we have seen teachers that, that actively speak up about, well, we shouldn't be teaching black history in February alone. We should be teaching it throughout the entire year. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely it's right. It's <laughs> history. That's right. So, so let's do that. Let's, let's all do our part and make sure, making sure that we're doing that in our own classroom spaces. And, and I see that in my own kids learning, you know, I see them, my six-year-old saying uh, all the time, it's like, uh, black history is not just for, for February. We're learning it all the time. Amazing. And they, yeah. they wouldn't be saying that unless their teacher has actively spoken on that matter. So I know that it is happening in the classrooms. Um, and I think that as curriculums update over the next couple of years, teachers have already moved past that i believe in many spaces um now it's the curriculum to catch up with the wording that supports that type of uh, teaching in our spaces um can, can you help me to understand like like i've always heard the curriculum but like, like where does it actually come from like is it designed at the school board level and then 
doled out to you or and then you have to work with it is that how it works because I'm like why is it taking so long to like change this I'm like why like it's it's just it's a frustrating theme that we've explored in other like topics where the change itself is taking so long so it's like why can't we just address the people that are like getting in the way and accelerate that because it's so disjointed it seems so far behind it's so, so sorry, Che. I see you. Uh, I was gonna. It is system centered, and so it does take a while. And they do vet it, and it does, and it's certainly not. You don't. It's funny as I always consider teaching. It can be the 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 greatest shackles, or it can be the greatest freedom. And so when that door closes, if if you are confident in your pedagogy, and you're and you're sort of confident in your pedagogy of sort of disruption, then you'll you'll you're not waiting around for the curriculum. And Jeez, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I got to tap out. I got to finally just say it because like it, it's been going on pedagogy? too long. What is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. You yeah. said it too many times. <laughs> I, I, I let it slide a couple times. I was gonna wait till we end. You're like, can you just explain what this word is? A pedagogy would be like uh, teaching philosophies or... I'm the uh, student in the back of the class. <laughs> <laughs> I've been chewing gum the whole time. I didn't want to sit there sitting there together. Yeah. All, all of us. Uh -huh. yeah. you, you guys all got a side chat or something going on? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, we do. But, uh, you know, we all didn't know. I couldn't so. even spell it. <laughs> yeah, I wrote it down. I, I, don't even, I was like, P-E-T-A-G-O-G-I-E-S. So, Pedagogies are, yeah, it's it's how you teach and why you teach it. So it's essentially, it's it's like you're teaching philosophy, essentially. So there's, there's different types of pedagogies that exist, right? So we're talking about that culturally relevant pedagogy. It's, it's teaching through the lens of making sure that we are addressing all of the cultural needs in our space. So when you hear that term CRRP or culturally responsive and relevant pedagogy, that's, gonna ask you that that's too. what that means. Yeah. So that's what that means. It's, it's teaching through that lens of we want to make sure that we are teaching everything so that we are addressing all of the cultural needs in our spaces. So, um, and it's not just, it's not just talking about, you know, um, culture, but it's how, how are we learning math through a cultural lens? Right, because math looks different in right. different cultures, and so um, it's making sure that we're uh, accommodating through through those cultural needs. So pedagogy just means, yeah, you're teaching philosophies. Can Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I would say that out of all the subjects I took throughout school, math was the one that I didn't like the most, and it wasn't until like probably grade eleven that it clicked for me, and I started to like it would start to work out. But how does math look different in other cultures? So. Um, we've done a lot of work on this actually in in our learning and um, it and it started a little bit more so with uh, looking at math through the ind indigenous lens and so we we took a we spoke to actually Kalinda Klein and Ruth Beatty are, are two people in Ontario that are doing lots of work around um, helping our indigenous students or helping the indigenous students in in Ontario um, with respect to different areas of the curriculum and they've done a lot of work through math and so um, things like beating beating requires a really uh, strong understanding of patterns 
and and mathematical you know formulating how those beads are going to be laid out and that sort of thing um, exists in different cultures as well so i can think about you know things like rangoli in, in india and creating very intricate patterns um, using you know uh, colored powders and um, and that looks different in other parts of the world where we create you know different geometric patterns in textiles um, this requires math and so understanding how to do those things is is a really great way to introduce patterning to students and so um, we've we've sort of engaged in that in different ways throughout um, and then there's also different expectations of what learning of math looks like in different parts of the world. So it's different than what we experience here in, in our Eurocentric way of learning math, right? Very much uh, the traditional, the teacher does the problem on the board and you copy the problem and you take it home and you practice it 10 times until you get it. Well, that doesn't, that. yeah, well, and it doesn't that. work. And it doesn't work. And we've continued that learning over time with uh, Sunil Singh, who's been, who's done a lot of math work. He's from Toronto, and um, he's he does a lot of work surrounding honoring our students' stories when it comes to math. What is what does it feel like when you are doing math? And just really understanding that frustration is part of math. And to not shy away from it, but to learn how to expect that this is and accept that this is part of math no mathematician out there was had never went through that that frustration of not being able to solve something and so just being understanding of the fact that that's that's part of the notion of it and so we should we shouldn't be telling our students that oh math is easy once you get the hang of it so you just got to get the hang of it no math is frustrating so let's let's work through it together let's play and explore until we figure out what we are doing Oh, so, finally, you're speaking my language here. You're like, 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 I'm like, why didn't somebody tell me that? Like, <laughs> oh, Sorry, Mike. I have a little um, sort of experience, like when what we did with our kids uh, growing growing up, when they were growing up, we put them in a math program. It was called UC Math, but I don't remember what the acronym stands for. But what it typically is is mental math. That's what they that's what they learn to do. They learn to do math with a abacus. And so, you know, it had 10 levels. Everybody didn't matter what age that they were, they what, what age or grade that they were in, they all went through these, these levels within the UC math system. And it was pure, pure math. And um, they used the, the abacus. So they learned how to use the abacus. And then after a while, they would take it away from them. But the kids could visualize the abacus and do it in their in their head. And so sometimes when you would go into the class, you would just hear these numbers, 42 minus 32 plus 100 and then and then um they would say stop and then the kids would shout out they shout out the answer right and it, it was you see these little kids doing these pro these problems that we would have to do on a calculator well it wow. came to a point where i was in canadian tire at one time and we were looking for something for remember it was for my wife's car and it was me and my daughter that was that was there my daughter was probably around six at the time and then so the the fellow at the desk he was telling me okay you're going to need a whatever, whatever. And he put down, he said the number and he said, and this is going to be 400. And then this is going to be whatever. And then, and the total will be, and then my daughter turned up and shouted out what the answer was. <laughs> and, I, and he stopped and he looked at her and then he pressed enter. And he said, yeah, that's what it, all right. And so I, just that different way of learning, I knew it helped them out just the way 
what I found, it didn't help with problem solving, but they can figure out a lot of the mathematical equations pretty, pretty fast. And to this day, you know, they always say they hated it, but I, I know in their head, they, they said, oh, I'm glad they put us in because we can, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but yeah, so that, I, I just knew because it was run by a, a Sri Lankan um, a couple and they had a few, a few, um, you know, spots that they did this, few offices that, that, that they did this at, but it's all part of this franchise. So wow. It, that's, you know, when you were talking about different cultures doing, you know, different things, I thought that was, you know, kind of my experience. With it. It's even something like multiplication where there's, there's so many different ways multiplication can be done, but yeah. the system has a very Eurocentric way of doing it. And so like you talked about that, that you don't know if it impacts problem solving, but those basics, however, we allow students to honor how they're good at learning them. When you have those basics, you actually do become a better problem solver. It frees up more working memory in your ability to process and be yeah, creative, yeah. which is one of those things in education we're, we're so fast to get to the sort of the sexy learning mm. that we forget how the basics actually are fundamental to being creative and being problem solvers and and wanting to connect with community where we tend to skip over the the foundational piece that allows students to fully immerse in these moments so if Sunil Singh will talk but there's not there's there's thousands of different ways you can play and learn multiplication we don't have to sit there and do the very traditional lines and mm. steps like that which is sort of his idea of hey Sunil Singh always uses the words alienation and our students are alienated by the curriculum because it doesn't honor their stories and if you can get past that alienation by honoring their stories and, and and learning their struggles the idea that I'm not good at math ultimately is a byproduct of alienation that students have somehow perceived that they, they are good at math where Sunil Singh she said we're not honoring the idea that math is supposed to be difficult and we haven't given our kids or directed our kids with that emotional intelligence to appreciate that struggle our system actually is all about compliance and getting it right and if you don't do it then you aren't honoring your math experience but Honoring math is honoring challenge. Mm -hmm. Wow. I feel so much better. Like, I can't tell you how much better I feel. I feel like a weight has been lifted off me, man. Because, like, even in my story, I'm like, it wasn't until grade 11, we took, the class was called Mathematics of Everyday Life. And it was about the math that you need for securing loans, um, you know, doing your taxes, you know, even the interest rate, how to calculate the interest rate on a car or a house. Like, that stuff is math that I use every single day it's been the most relevant class and um it it it, it just it, it always sticks with me because i felt that was like a turning point for when i was like you know what math isn't so bad and you know i i, I can do this and it actually was applied to my real life so it made more sense yeah it became relevant right and and we do have a new math curriculum that just came out this year um and you know ontario and and it includes financial literacy now so uh, my grade six students this year learned about all the different ways that you can pay for things. So they're, oh, they're learning about amazing. things like uh, Bitcoin and what is Bitcoin? You know, they're learning about um, uh, EMTs and how to pay for things using using your 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 electronic your wallet on your on your cell phone. Um, and we're calculating interest rates yeah. and we're learning what that means. And, and this is an aspect of math that I think has been uh, missing in, in our math classes. Uh, and now it's there from K to 12. It's, it's in every single year. So there is an aspect of financial literacy, learning about money. It's where it starts in the younger years. And then around grade six or so is when they start to learn about different forms of payment and, um, and calculating interest. So yeah, it's, it's coming. 
now we we also when we were reminiscing about school and we were thinking about you know back in the different classifications of classes and i know that you guys aren't high school teachers but i i know that you'll have a view or an opinion on this what do you think about the the methodology with applied versus like academic classes because those were terms that were used for high school classes when we were going to school and you know i was very much encouraged to take academic classes to go down the university stream but um i find that i like that class i mentioned mathematics for everyday life that was a very relevant class but that was in the applied sort of like class stream that was for people that were going to be doing trades or anything like that and it always stuck out to me because i'm like no this class is relevant no matter if you're going to be pursuing a university education or going to college or a trade or um uh, another sort of occupation so what are your thoughts on on academic versus applied and i don't even know if those terms are still relevant they are no longer relevant moving forward into this year they've removed streaming in high school so it continues oh. a flow um like in elementary so you won't uh you won't push kids into academic or applied because there is sort of when you as a grade eight teacher and you have to help students make these choices, uh, they tend to fixate on something like learning skills. But as Pat and I've had lots of conversations about our learning skills are actually very much just compliancy skills. How compliant are you to the system? How much um, have you sort of played the game of school? And so if you have a bunch of ease on your learning skills, then then we're going to send you into an academic class is tends to be the very general uh way it was done but of course the the research will tell you that or that certain students are really good at getting ease and other students and this is where because it's disproportionate across the uh, and with our racialized students they don't get the ease at quite the same rate even if their marks are the same um and so you start to stream disproportionately and so that's one of the reasons but ultimately so that academic applied it no longer exists and so it's trying to make sure that students aren't getting pushed in directions at a very early age where we haven't had a chance to let their skills flourish or to find that engagement. So, yes, that part of the system had some definite flaws that has been uh, eradicated. Is that just this year that they they, they got rid of that? Mm -hmm. wow. that's, that's for the grade nines that came in that are that that just came in this year no next year when our concrete nines are going in wow next that's year. excellent because we, we were also talking about like i felt like this immense pressure from my parents and i don't know if it's because they were like you know our me being second generation like they, were, they wanted me to go to university like my dad wanted me to go to university and like we were talking about school and i said that I came into my best when I was, I went to college. I went to Centennial College. I had a great time there. I extracted so much from that education. When I do today, that education helped me so much. I know kids that went to university and end up having to come back to go to college. And I feel that like I went to college and got a, like the return on investment on my education is so, so good to me that I, I have absolutely no complaints. I'm so, so happy. So, you know, we, 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 would, we just want to talk about that. Do you, do you see that even at the, with the level of students that you teach with, with kids being you know, focused to go more applied or focused on skills that are more university centric? So I think, sorry, well, go ahead, Jay. I was going to say a lot of that vernacular is, is, you know, you, you think you're 13 and 14 year olds that this is on their mind. And then you realize as a grade eight teacher, this is, it's not on their mind yet. Not enough that we should be starting to categorize where you're going or directing. There's so much growth still to happen. So much self actualization to happen that you really feel as, as the system that we're putting a lot of pressure on these kids and we're setting them on a path very early on. And, and you'll have a few students that are really fixated on it, but you have a lot of students that, that just 
you're 13 and 14 years old. These are big things to have to work out. Because even if I think going through when I was going through high school, it's five years, there was no pressure, you know, going in to, to, to think about these things. And we seem to be pulling it further down, down, down to be more, um, sort of being on that path that we've determined the path you should be on at a younger and younger age on our student population, where I think I'm like, I'm having great conversations with my 13 and 14 year old, tough for a 13 year old to decide this is the pathway that's going to lead to where I want to go. Oh my, this is, this is a lot of responsibility we're putting on shoulder. We're, we're making our students shoulder a real burden here when we know they're maybe not necessarily in the emotional place, the, the emotional intelligence to know where they want to go or to see the relevancy. Like it's middle school. So, you know, you got to ask for things nicely, still 10 times mm. to do it. And you're trying to get, <laughs> you're still trying to get students to make their high school courses and you can go all over. Let's pick our course. Let's pick our, let's get into, and they're still just jumping into the, my blueprint space with seven minutes before the deadline. You're like, well, this is not the way we want to be choosing how we're going into the high school. So, you know, even with best, intentions 13 and 14 year olds they're 13 and 14 year olds yes i'm still want to be superheroes so, you know. <laughs> yeah i had no idea they're like, oh, pick, pick, that, that high school pick what you want to be i'm like I, I don't know like i'm looking mm. at ontario job futures i'm like uh i, I barely wanted i did i barely even knew what i was gonna have for lunch never mind pick my occupation for the rest of my life like ooh. Yeah, you're right. And and Jordan, I wanted to touch on something else that you had mentioned when you were speaking about your parents wanting you to go to university. I think that um, uh, many, especially immigrant parents, still want these things for their their children, and they push them. They I think sometimes they push them. I, that was certainly my experience. I don't know about yourself, Ruby, but it was. It was my experience growing up where my parents, you know, they emigrated from a different country. They wanted to make sure that their their children were going to be successful and thrive. Um, and so it was there was no option for college. There was no option for, you know, learning a trade. Um, there definitely wasn't an option for being an entrepreneur at that time. It was you go to university and you're going to do these things that we came here for you to be able to do. And, and that's your only option. And so I sometimes feel like that, that pressure still exists for a lot of our students to, um, especially when their parents have sacrificed a lot to come to a new country and it's that expectation is being put on them to make sure that they do that. They feel like maybe that, and, and we all know that sometimes that is, that works. And sometimes, you know, our, our students will go to medical school and then all of a sudden just drop out and be like, this mm -hmm. isn't for me. Yeah. I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. And, and so that is something I think that we have to be mindful of and allow our students. And it's probably, um, helpful that that de-streaming has happened to really allow for that for our students to figure out who they are before they get into uh these these occupational streams i'm, I'm really yeah. happy to hear I'll, that mm -hmm. i'll tell you uh, how it was for me and my household so i remember like finishing high school and i wanted to go to college because i was more creative and i kind of, and i wanted to figure out that stream and it was actually like world war three in my house my dad was livid he's like how can how did I leave my country for my daughter to just go to college? Like he really saw it as a diminishing factor. So I went to university and then he actually even went to law school. And when I was finished, I didn't practice law. And my dad was like, you didn't do all this. I was like, no, you told me to go to university. I checked everything. And I, I just can't see myself like practicing law now. So my, dad, my dad's now, because now my dad equates it to the, the salary He's like, okay, well, if you're making over like a certain amount, you're okay. So it was all these equations from an immigrant perspective. And my dad yeah. was just livid. Uh, but now, now he's more open-minded, but also his kids are 
quad older, so it doesn't really matter. But I can imagine the pressure. Uh, and it's not logical to a kid. Like, you're still trying to figure it out, so. Even when I thought about, sorry, Mike, go. Oh, it was not, I was just going to say that. So, um, well, for Pav and Shay, I, I coach, I, I have a basketball academy and I coach kids from, you know, very young to, to high school kids. And so we just had a group of kids that went into university last year. With a lot of these kids, they're having troubles now um, because of the challenges of, you know, learning remotely. And, you know, you get a lot of the conversations of them saying, well, why do we even have to go to school? We can learn all this stuff on online. Um, we can do it on our own or we can build our own. So you mentioned entrepreneurship. They, they go out and they make their own, make their own companies. Even with my son, my son um, is going to university in September. Um, but he took the year off to run his business, to build his build his business for this this year. Um, there was two factors in that. He wanted to do the business and um, the, the situation with the world today, with everybody learning remotely, because a lot of the people are having challenges and they want that university experience going, going forward. Um, do you think this is something that is going to change the outlook of university college or post-secondary school? where you have more people trying to create their own businesses or not going to post-secondary or, you know, what are your thoughts on those? Um, I think that in general, this past year has really opened up people's eyes to entrepreneurship. Um, and so regardless, I, I, I don't know that I, I'm really capable of answering the question of whether that's going to change uh, the university experience or whether or not people are still enticed to to go into university for particular fields. But I do know that there are a lot of people who started businesses this year mm -hmm. um, to to sort of become a little bit more creative or to explore their creativity and to turn that into something that could benefit them. Um, and I and I remember having a conversation with my grade six students where I part of my assignment with them was to create an Instagram post. Mm -hmm. And they were like, why are you teaching how to <laughs> us how to do that? Like, I thought social media was like something that teachers didn't want us to be doing in school. I was like, well, let's think about this for a second. How many of you have somebody in your family that has a small business or like mm -hmm. that bakes something and sells that to mm -hmm. to somebody else? And I know that this exists in in my classroom community. So um, many students put up their hand. Yeah, my sister has this business or my my dad has this small business or whatever. And I said, well, many of you are gonna have businesses when you get older. And regardless of what you are gonna be doing, social media is going to be a factor in you advertising for your business. And so, and then students were kind of like thinking, oh yeah. And I was like, look at myself. I, I am a teacher, this is my profession, but I have a podcast as well. And we create infographics on a daily basis for that podcast. And we put that information out there because infographics are a really um, important way for us to be able to get our information out to the world. And so this is something that you're going to have to be able to do. So I think that regardless of the fact, uh, regardless of what careers our students eventually go into, whether mm -hmm. that involves uh, university or not, I think that um, entrepreneurship is always it's 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 integrating itself into whatever it is that we are doing and so i think that idea of having a small business on the side or a side hustle or whatever it is you know that's that's going to exist more and more i think going forward because this is something that is uh is accessible 
for for many people as a as a as a primary career or a a side hustle so i think that is something that we have to um welcome and whether that diminishes the the need to be going to university i don't know um maybe that's too soon to tell but i think that um that the trades that maybe we are learning in in college community college is something that it's it's kind of infusing a little bit more and just before we wrap, Shay, I want to ask, I noticed you have a lot of tattoos. Are Do you show those while like teaching? Because like, I know maybe back in the day that might have been a faux pas. I'm interested to see how it is now. Oh, I, I never worry about it. And I've never I've never been asked about it. But I know when our podcast is connected with teachers all over, a lot of Americans ask us this all the time because uh -huh. despite the land of the free, they tend to be very compliant. So there's teachers that talk about this is their big this is their big statement. They have a tattoo or they talk about how they don't have tattoos or they hide their tattoos. And I said, I've never been. I've never actually been questioned, never been in the position. And I think that's correct. If we're sitting in a system that's trying to promote equity and inclusion, then this, if this is a talking point, I don't think, I always argue arguments. Where do you want to be in 10 years when you look back on your stance on a position? And, and a tattoo is a very, well, depending on which culture, they have different meanings. But ultimately, if you're on the side of trying to suppress stories or honor the way someone's doing something, that's not the side of the argument you ever want to be caught on. So and I've never had that experience. No one's ever questioned me on on my tattoos, but yes, I, and I don't I don't hide them. Okay, that's yeah, because IT industry, you know, it, it's okay to have tattoos, but there's always you're always kind of looking to see what the reaction is. Because I've seen people where it's cool, and I've seen other times where other people like, oh, any professional, any professional screen yeah. where you know you're you're supposed to be like suited up like maybe your tattoos end at the cuff like yeah well i know if i show my tattoo i'd have to have my shirt off anyway so it won't be in any business sense so <laughs> uh, only only if you close a big deal mike I don't yeah, know, yeah. Your shirt off. <laughs> around your head like a helicopter yeah it's uh, so, a right. so shame Pav. like we can deep dive into so many topics like we can talk to you guys all day because it's just there's just so many elements like you know tying into our experiences and just being interested and curious like what the future holds for, for, for children, right? Um, so I think we just want to leave it at with understanding or getting a sense of what your experience, like what was a, a, a lesson learned from a teacher for you growing up? And when was the first time you experienced a teacher that looked like you? And I guess for Shay, for you, what was your experience like, you know, having a teacher of, of a, another diverse culture? And would did that influence your 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 learning process hmm on and I'm, I'm thinking now so i certainly know that uh i can actually tell you the first time i had a male teacher because that was like a big deal like when, when are you, you going to get a male mm. teacher you have a male teacher so I, yeah I, I got mr walsh grade five first male teacher and i probably didn't have one again and then when we talk about um um a racialized teacher i would be i'm going to say grade seven French is probably the first time. And I'm going to venture probably the only time. Um, yeah, maybe great. Yeah. I'm going to say, so in regards to, you know, very Eurocentric, very white, um, that's been, been my story, which highlights the beginning. I had a lot of growth to do. Ottawa is a predominantly white town. So you, you're very naive uh, to the world, which is why ultimately I love telling people I'm part of that Rexdale community, mutually learning in that space, still want to get better. But um, 
as a human being, I'm a far better human being, being blessed to be in a space that's so rich and diverse. And so those are my my two, Mr. Walsh. And then, oh, I don't remember his name, Grace, because it was French. Because it was yeah. French. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I want to say it was Mr. Perrier, but he would be my probably my only uh, racialized teacher I ever had in my educational experience. And uh, for myself, interestingly enough, because I had seen the talking points ahead of time, I had some time to think about this. Ah, oh, cheater! <laughs> you know what? I would have, I would have been thinking back, and I actually never had a single teacher that wasn't white. And this was growing up, in, and this includes university. Uh, sorry, this includes high school. Um, wow. Never had a teacher that wasn't white growing up in Rexdale. I was gonna say in Rexdale. Yeah, wow. I had to think back and I was like, no, I had a lot of male teachers, which was interesting. And, and my first male teacher was grade three, four and five were male teachers, which thinking back, I was like, that's, that's a little strange because male teachers, you don't tend to see until later, a little bit later on grade five and upwards or so. Um, we have looked this yeah. up, right? I think I think teaching yeah. now this is not going to be exact data because now I'm just going from there, but it's almost 80% of all teachers are white women. 74%. Oh, wow. That's an interesting yeah. stat. 74%. That's very recent. That's as of, I think, 2017. Um, so that that is something that is still very prevalent. But um, but now if I'm looking at my staff now, the staff that I work with currently, Che and I don't teach at the same school anymore, and we're looking at the staff, um, it's it's far more racially diverse. And so students do get to see themselves more more represented in the in the classroom space. Um, but it is still very predominantly white female oriented in uh, K to eight. I don't think that that includes high school. I think that's a K to eight um, statistic. So yeah, it's uh, and and in the second part of your question, teachers that made had a big influence um, on myself. I can think of a few, but it was always um, influence not as a teacher, but more so as as a female. So I had a lot of female role models on. But if I'm looking back, it was sort of like a distorted distorted idea of what a female should be. And because you're looking at a predominantly female career, um, even back then, obviously more so, um, it was it was a lot of um, generalizations, I think, of this is what a female should be. So I had a lot of teachers that I loved, but in terms of who I am today, um, maybe not as much influence as perhaps even teachers and colleagues that I work with now. So I think that representation definitely matters. Yeah. Well, Pav, Shay, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, really, really appreciate having you. Uh, can't wait to tune into some more episodes of your pod. And, um, you know, I, I, I can speak for all of us when I say we'd love to have you back again because this was super informative. Um, I've definitely got way more questions to ask. And, um, you know, if I come across any other words I can't pronounce, I'm definitely going to hit you guys <laughs> up first. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Um, I have to say, I'm going to speak on behalf of Che as well. This is the first non-educational podcast that uh, that we've been invited on to. So um, apologies if we used words that are a little bit more educational lingo, um, just okay. not used to. Uh, no, to we learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> we learned. Don't worry, we'll, 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 we can pepper you with, uh, with, with tech terms too, because I got to ask you Perfect. about our, the SFP plus connection and how that goes into the back lane of the server. Yeah, 
I can't speak on that. So. <laughs> oh, I was, I was going to say mine was dying all morning. I wish I had better. <laughs> I'll tell you how this trigger, this conversation got triggered. And I was like thinking of you, uh, you had posted something about AI and I was like, why aren't we oh. thinking about it? The education piece, like that's what I mean. There's so much to still deep dive into. Yeah. Um, but like, obviously COVID is the natural response. Like, you know, kids going home and, you know, adapting to technology and screen time. But there's so much that's evolving in the education system. And, and Mike and you and I alluded to that. And so the beginnings of just going into, uh, like going to the classroom and just having, <laughs> is that a good? Seeing just, you know, the difference of like how we learn. So, so thank you. Thank you for making time. And yeah, it was really cool. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. It was great talk, great conversation. This has been the Technically Diverse Podcast. Remember to hit subscribe on whichever app you prefer to get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on various social platforms. On Twitter, you can follow us at TechnicallyD. On Instagram, you can follow us at Technically Diverse. Or if you prefer to watch, subscribe to our YouTube channel that shares the same name, Technically Diverse. We also love getting feedback and ideas, so if there's anything you'd like to see, you can send us an email to technicallydiverse at gmail.com.